how are we incentivizing large corporations to reinvest back into the economy, have a positive impact on the environment. We need to investigate those like systemic roots so that we can make some broad, wide ranging change. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another week of the Tea Please podcast, where we spill the tea on important conversations that help us get through life, help us learn a little bit more, be a little bit better, all the good stuff. And this week is definitely no different. I have been looking for someone to get into this topic, and I'm so excited that Jordan was able to come on and speak with me and dive into it a little bit more. She is an author. And she is really passionate about social justice. And after everything that was 2020, she decided to write this book called It Took a Crisis. And she talks about all of the hot topics that we've all been following in the last year or so. We talk about COVID. We talk about Black Lives Matter. We talk about climate change. And we get into like, what was it about last year that brought all these topics to the surface? Like we all knew that they were issues, but... For some reason, we were not taking them seriously. And then all of a sudden, everything kind of blew up. So we dive into like, what about that? Why was it the perfect storm for all of these topics to be brought to the surface and really like dismantled and and brought to everyone's attention because they are so important? It's just really interesting because I've been personally wrestling with that, not knowing a lot of stuff and coming to terms with what I believed and where I was kind of blind to something. So it's a really interesting conversation. And this is definitely helpful if you yourself are still wrestling with these topics and wondering what you can do now because we're kind of coming out of the other side. Things are starting to open up. I just got my first vaccine a few weeks ago. And so now what can we do to keep the momentum going with these important conversations that can really change the way we live and the way our society is. What can we actually do? So we get into all of that with Jordan and I'm so excited to share it with you. And I'm about to share it with you because I'm keeping it short. So go ahead and leave a review. Share this with a friend. DM me. Guys, I've been getting so much more DMs and it really brings me so much joy. So please come find me on Instagram at the Tea Please Podcast and talk to me because I just love connecting with you guys. Seriously, I've been talking a lot about the circle this last week and having all the chats in my DMs and doing all these polls is just been so fun for me. So definitely come find me there. All right, let's spill the tea with Jordan. This is my first book, um, but writing a book has always been on a bucket list of mine. So I didn't know what the book was going to be about, but I just knew I wanted to write a book. Um, If you know me, I'm very opinionated. So I I figured somewhere in my life I'd have something to say um, and it would be enough to make a book. So um, yes, I, this is my first book. Um, And it really came about because one of my old professors um, at Georgetown in DC started a course. Um, it's like an open sourcing course for folks who wanted to write a book and wanted to learn how to write a good book. He, he kept posting about it. And um, I reached out to him and I was like, hey, I'm really interested in writing a book. Uh, I think with everything going on during COVID, I have a very interesting perspective as someone who's a part of you know, two marginalized communities. I'm Black and a woman. Um, I think that my perspective during this pandemic is really unique and needs to be heard. Uh, and I want to, you know, amplify the voices of, of other folks that look like me as well. Um, and so we sat down, we talked it out, we kind of sketched out what the book would look like. And he said, yeah, I, I think we could write a book. So from there, I just kind of dedicated my weekends to writing books, uh, writing the book. And then, 
you know, over time I looked up and I had like a 35,000 35,000 word manuscript um, that I could, you know, submit to my publisher. So it, it happened really organically. Uh, my family and friends are like, oh, you wrote a book? I'm like, yeah, it wasn't that hard. I had a, I had a lot to say. Yeah, I mean, especially with the topic and everything that you speak on in the book, there's plenty there. That's awesome that you were able to do that, like on top of literally everything else going on last year. And it's just really interesting. I think that I personally am excited to see what type of content comes out of 2020. There's going to be more books. There's definitely going to be like a pandemic movie about this. Like I want to know how it's going to be retold because it's such a big story and there are so many different facets of what happened in 2020 that are intertwined and interconnected, which I know you talk about in your book too. Yeah, I do. I talk about that a lot. And that was one of the big reasons I wanted to write the book. Because, you know, once everything started to unfold with the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I, I really wanted that story to be told. Um, because a lot of people, I think, were experiencing Black Lives Matter movement and engaging with some of these topics on race in the United States for the first time. And I saw a lot of things on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram that were taking a very siloed approach to you know, talking about these issues. And I, I thought, you know, someone really needs to like put these events in the appropriate historical context, explain, you know, the concepts around them, and then explain why these things have been heightened as a result of, of COVID-19. So I really just wanted to string all of those concepts together. And so that, you know, for folks who are on Instagram, like seeking information about all of these topics, you know, they could just have one book that says topic by topic, how are these things connected? Where are these, uh, where is it, where, what's the origin of these topics? Um, and then how are, you know, what's the appropriate historical context that we wrap them up in? So that was kind of the goal for me. And when you say siloed on Instagram, what kind of stuff were you seeing? Or like, what do you mean by that? There were so many narratives being told because I was confused. Like, I don't, I want to help. Like, what am I supposed to do? Should I be quiet? Should I do something? Totally. No, Sarah, that's such a good question because I think a lot of people struggled with that. And I think that there were a lot of folks who came from different places with different levels of education on these topics who were posting things on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, as if they were like subject matter experts. We had a lot of folks who were posting things like defund the police. And that was like one post that people just kept sharing and sharing and sharing. And for me, like I studied African-American studies in college and I was like, yes, okay, I get where you're coming from. But the folks that are sharing this may not understand what that means. Um, and they're sparking dialogues without the appropriate context without the appropriate background to support those discussions. So I think that sometimes they were these like quick Instagram stories that that people were posting. You know, that's not enough to talk about these issues. Like we needed we needed a reference document. Yeah, and that's why I would assume that there was some backlash with that sentiment in particular of defund the police. And then like the other side of that conversation is like, well, my husband's a police officer or, you know, like someone in my family is a police officer and like they're a good human and they like this would really hurt right. them. And that little soundbite of defund the police is totally out of context, basically, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, it's not out of context. I think that's 
the the message is is there. Um, it, but I think there needs to be kind of a second part to that sentence, which is like, we use the police in our current system to solve for a lot of problems that police officers should not be solving for. Um, so police officers are not trained mental health therapists. They're not, you know, trained to help um, families that need access to social services, you know, but we lumped all of those uh, kind of responsibilities into our police departments. And when we say defund the police, we really mean fund social services that would decrease crime and therefore decrease the need to have such a like militarized police force. It's like reassigning roles, basically. And that happens in companies all the time yeah. of like rewriting job descriptions. So in such a large institution, you'd think that that would be maybe something we've thought of. But one of the topics I do discuss in my book is like, where did the police come from? Like, what were the origins of the police? And there are definitely some dark origins there where they come from in the United States. So I don't think people had a full understanding for like, you know, you know, what it means to defund the police, where police departments even came from, and why they were put in place. Um, and I think that when you have that context, these conversations become less charged, because you understand why they're so important, and why people from marginalized communities are so passionate about these things. But when you just say defund the police, you know, people are like, you want my husband to lose his job as a police officer. And, you know, of course, they're, they're very um, defensive of that. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I know we're like going down a rabbit hole. So we will come back and like tie it together. <laughs> but just while we're here, can you frame the, the police conversation a little bit and like go into that context of where they did come from? And yeah, I think the the simplest way without going into too much of a rabbit hole is to say that like the earliest, you know, police forces were were almost like slave patrols that would go around and, you know, capture enslaved like, people who were enslaved uh, and bring them back to wherever they were, you know, being held captive. And so those were the very early versions because those people were breaking the law. Um, they were trying to be free, which at the time was against the law. So, you know, these early slave patrols kind of uh, became law enforcement um, on behalf of Southern states who wanted to make sure that their, you know, as disgusting as it sounds, their property was being um, taken back from from Northern states. Um, so those are the early stages. And then, you know, later there, there became, um, later there were a lot of uprisings as a result of, you know, different civil rights uh, promises that were taken away from from marginalized communities. So, um, you know, th there were also police forces tasked with heavily, heavily monitoring black communities, um, because there were lots of protests, uprisings, because once slavery was abolished, these people had no, they had no leg to stand on, they had no, they had no money to do anything. So naturally, there was a lot of unrest um, in those communities. And so you know, we from there we had we had to have this like heavy militarization of specific neighborhoods to minimize minimize crime, um, and that's kind of where the origins come from, right? It's it's it happened over time, but I don't think that we can like cross over or easily glaze over you know our, America's history and slavery and how our police system has you know evolved out of that. 
Yeah, especially because it doesn't seem like there's been conversations about what the police do over the years. Us as like the general public don't really have insight into their training and like what that looked like to shift out of that way of thinking. And it never changed, shockingly. I mean, and that's why Black Lives Matter did what it did in 2020 after George Floyd and so many others before him even. So let's tie that together. Like, do you think that the Black Lives Matter conversation would have happened the way that it did without the virus? No, I think there still would have been some some protesting, peaceful protesting. I think there would have been um, a lot of unrest about what happened. I think where 2020 comes in and 2021 too, I'm, <laughs> it's still unfolding. But I think that where it comes in is, you know, we had folks being quarantined at home and, you know, we're just constantly taking in more information. Even when we're at work, we're still looking, scrolling through Instagram and Facebook and reading articles. But I think even more so in in quarantine, you know, we just have so much free time. Um, I, I think people were just engaging with this content in a very different way than they were you know, pre-pandemic. And on top of that, you have people in America who are experiencing oppression for the very first time as a result of, you know, if you're a woman, maybe this is the first time you had to think about, you know, what am I going to do to take care of my kids? You know, if my husband's at work and I have to, you know, be the one who's staying home and taking care of the kids, making sure they're doing school or, you know, or you're just juggling housework and your own job. You know, I think there's also examples of people just getting uh, mass layoffs. And I think that that, you know, creates a lot of, you know, like class oppression as well. And so I think that you're having all of these groups who before may not have understood the anger and the frustration of like the Black Lives Matter movement. Not that the people there are angry and frustrated, just like there's a lot of passion around that topic. And I think that as a result of people just being frustrated with the status quo, um, that that made the Black Lives Matter platform just even more appealing to a broader group of people. Um, and so you have the you have all these protests happening in like these random states all over the country that we've never seen participation before. Um, and in, in my book, I argue it's because, you know, folks are angry at the government. Um, and this is just such a clear expression of that anger um, that they're protesting against, um, you know, the way that the police is enforcing the law. Um, and I'll, I'll even say the law because some of these people who were murdered didn't even commit, <laughs> you know, a crime. So, yeah, that's a really interesting point about like maybe this was the first time that people really had a lot of their freedoms like taken away or just experienced some of the struggles that a lot of communities have already been dealing with but it was just like by the masses people that had not been dealing with it in like oh you actually just can't go anywhere like even that is like a huge freedom that's taken away or you have to wear a mask this is what life is going to be like right now and it's really challenging so I didn't didn't even put that together honestly it's more tangible when so many people were feeling parallels to what these communities have been you're so right it's just people understood it. And I think it was like this mass empathy that people had for, you know, the, the black community all at once. Um, I think there was also something about the fact that you're like, I when I watched 
the George Floyd murder on my phone, which is a crazy sentence to even say, I was I was at work, like I was working, and um, I just was like on a conference call. I looked down, and I'm just like watching this man die in front of me, and I that like I can't I can't imagine you know what his family must feel knowing that that's out there and like you know everywhere. And so I just think, you know, folks were like, that could be my son, that could be, you know, that could be my daughter. And so I think that, you know, the humanization of watching him not be able to breathe, when you also have a pandemic where people are struggling to breathe, like, I don't think that parallel can go without saying. Um, So yeah, I just think it really hit home for, for for folks in a very different way. And even Breonna Taylor as well, like maybe even more so because, you know, she had such high hopes. She had such high dreams. She was an essential worker. Um, and, you know, she was just in her home and the police came in. So, you know, I just think there were these very jaw-dropping stories um, that folks really related to, especially against the backdrop of quarantine. From my experience, this is obviously not the first story that we've heard. And it did hit me differently. It's hard to name why. Yeah. And I think some of these things that are just underlying sentiments throughout this time because of everything that we were going through with the virus, it really did kind of amplify it. It was like the perfect storm for this conversation to really blow up the way that it did. That's exactly how I feel. Like it was the perfect storm. And and with George Floyd specifically, it really reminded me of Emmett Till, who back back in the day, he was a, a young man who was lynched by a mob of, of white men. I believe they were a part of the KKK. Um, and his mother insisted that he have an open casket funeral because she wanted people to see what lynching did to two people, what he looked like. And his body was terrible looking, like it was awful looking. But as a result of that, people seeing that, like you had all of these different groups coming out and saying, how are we allowing lynching in America? You know, people were very frustrated. And I, I really do feel like that's kind of what happened with George Floyd. Like people watching that on their phones made them extremely uncomfortable. I think it was just like those parallels, like. I couldn't, they couldn't go without saying, um, because I I think it's just, it's just so jaw dropping to be sitting here and saying this man is free and he just killed someone. If you and I did that, we would be in jail in like two seconds. This is part of the conversation. In your book, you also talk about like climate change. Do you think the same thing happened with this topic of like, oh, this is just another thing we haven't been addressing that's been amplified by stuff being taken away from us and just life being different? You know, I think climate change is a bit different. I think, you know, I argue in my book, and I didn't even really fully appreciate this until I started to talk to people who were experts in in climate change uh, or social impact or corporate impact, um, that, like, they believe, like, COVID-19 is really, like, this testing ground for what will happen when the climate continues to deteriorate and our, like, ecosystem begins to kind of fail on us. In the future... Um, you know, as our environment continues to deteriorate, there are a lot of things that there are going to be more viruses that are out there, right? So as the ice caps start to melt, we're going to be exposed to a variety of bacteria and viruses that have not 
seen the earth since you know, like dinosaurs were around because the ice caps were supposed to stay melted for, or sorry, excuse me, they were supposed to stay frozen for a really long time. <laughs> and because of everything that we've done and how we've industrialized the world, they're, they're actually melting really, really fast. Um, and so there's actually like bacteria inside the ice caps that's going to like seep into our water supply. It's going to be, it, we're going to be exposed to that bacteria through the air. And so, you know, we're going to have to deal with like viruses for a very long time that we've never been exposed to. Um, and on top of that, there are all these environmental factors that we're going to have to deal with, like air quality. We're going to have to deal with like deteriorated drinking water. Um, flooding is going to be like a very casual thing that happens all the time in the future because of all this, you know, melting that's happening at such an accelerated rate. And so, you know, one of the environmental um, specialists that I speak to, her name is Maggie Kervik. She's actually works with uh, like Fortune 500 companies to help them like make actionable change against their climate goals. And she's like, you know, I hope people realize that, you know, your supply chain when you're developing a product um, and, you know, how your consumers interact with that product, like, that was really tested in COVID-19 and will be really important as the environment continues to deteriorate because the way that people engage with their environment is just going to drastically change, you know, whether we make progress against, you know, reducing carbon emissions or not, um, we're going to be dealing with a less healthy population over time that's going to be exposed to more threats, right? And so it's like really scary, but I didn't even appreciate how t like tangible COVID-19 is to the, like, or excuse me, how, how applicable this crisis is to some of the future issues that we'll deal with as the environment continues to decline. So, you know, when I heard that, I was like, yeah, we should be doing a lot. <laughs> we should be doing a lot more. Yeah. I mean, it's such a bummer. It's such a bummer of a conversation because it's so unavoidable. And I think that there, there's still obviously so much to do. I talked to someone on the podcast that I interviewed about sustainability, and we kind of got into it a little bit about how the climate change movement didn't really have the right marketing approach from the beginning. It is really freaking scary. So people push it away because they don't want to deal with it. And it's like, no, no, no. It's okay if you can't fix everything right now, but we do have to take steps because this is the reality. I don't know if you've seen this. It was, I think it's on Netflix, but it's David Attenborough. He put out a new documentary, I think a few months ago. It's really like his experience. He like goes all the way back to when he was in his 20s and is like, this is what the problems were then. This is what they are now. This is the percent of wilderness that is gone in the last 40 years. And then at the end, he's just like, this is what's going to happen if we don't do anything. Basically, we're all going to die. But he does frame it in a way of these are the things that we can do. And some of them are in motion. You know, he talks about the population. We have a lot of people. But naturally, people are not having as many kids as they used to be. Over time, that's going to help. And there's some other things in there, too. But that conversation, just with everything that happened last year with the brush fires, and we had fires in Colorado for months on end. And I'm nervous for this summer because, of course, I'm thinking the same thing is going to happen. Yeah, there's still a lot of work to be done there. Yeah, I think I talk in my book about um, another book I read called The Future We Choose, which I really love and have been recommending to everyone. It was written by two um, climate change experts. Um, and they talk about, you know, the first half of the book is this is what our world will look like if we don't make any changes. 
Um, and it's really scary. They talk about every day you're going to wake up, you're going to look at your phone to check the air quality, and then you're going to check in with your employer to see if you can even go outside to go to work. Right. And then the other half of the book is what happens if today we start making these changes. And it's really like beautiful to see like how great our world could be if we, you know, start building more forests and, you know, start regenerating as we innovate. Um, so I, they talk in the book about some mindsets that you can have. And one of the ones that I love, it's called stubborn optimism, which really gets to the point that you were just talking about, Sarah, which is, you know, all of this can feel so big, but really one person can make a difference, you know, and it's just like voting, right? Like you just have to do it. <laughs> so you just have to do everything you can to vote and you have to do everything that you can to change the climate. Um, and if you don't do it for yourself, like do it for your kids, do it for your parents, do it for someone you love, but you have to have the stubborn optimism that your actions matter and have consequences. Um, and at the same time, you know, I think the onus is so much on our on big corporations to create items that we can purchase and that are, if not like have no harm to the environment, are like regenerating the environment in some way. So like improving the environment. And because, you know, corporations are really where we can make the biggest difference. And I, I truly believe that like corporations shouldn't be creating uh, products that like, where the onus is on us to figure out oh, well, like, can I recycle this? Oh, my state doesn't allow me to recycle these materials. Oh, I have to drive to the state to get this to even be recycled. So, you know, that's a lot of research for consumers to do. And I think that the, the government should be kind of forcing and strong arming corporations to be designing materials that are better for the environment. I totally agree with you. There should be like some regulation to incentivize large corporations to put something in place to like do the right thing you know that seems common sense to me but we're not there yet <laughs> but even with like consumers we talk about in um the other episode that i was talking about where we talk about sustainability of like voting with your dollars so if you know that a business is not doing their part or considering like where all the plastic is going that they are generating then look around like is there a small business who's maybe doing something better to help the environment it is so doom and gloom, or it, it should be because it's like really serious. But when you look at the other side, it would be so much better. And at the end of that documentary I was telling you about, you can see like, this is what a city would look like. And it's just so beautiful and intertwined with nature. And like all the buildings have greenery up the walls and just nature is just a part of everything, which I think everyone is craving right now, especially because we've been inside so much in this last year or so. Having that stubborn optimism it's hard to have. It's hard to have, but you know, I've started adopting it and I've I've found that it just makes me feel better about the impact that I'm, you know, trying to have on the environment. Um I'll I'll also say, you know, I think it's I think it's just important for everyone to put put into perspective like we're not going to be perfect. That's okay. Like you don't have to be perfect. I just told one of my friends, he's very into the environment. Um and you know, he harps on recycling, recycling, recycling. And I tested his theory. I was like, do you recycle the the shampoo bottles in your shower? He was like, I don't. And I was like, people are very focused on like rooms in their house, right? So people recycle things in the kitchen. And I'm like, 
you also have to recycle the things in your shower and, you know, like boxes from deliveries. Um, so I just think it's like, it's all about learning and growing. And it's not, he wasn't like, oh, I didn't do that. So now I have to just stop. Like, there's no point. I'm ruining the environment. He was like, okay, I'm going to put a recycling bin in my shower. You know, we're, we're all just learning and growing together. And I think it's just, you know, that's what it's all about is, is just trying your best. But I think that stubborn optimism is what's going to get us across the finish line. And it is a collective effort. So if someone's not recycling something in their bathroom, hopefully some other people are that are still moving the needle along. It is a collective thing. Like your individual actions do make an impact, but it's not the end all be all. Yeah, keep trying. And don't forget the three kind of pillars. It's like reduce, reuse, recycle. It's like, you know, before I buy something, I'm like, do I really think I need this? Like at the grocery store, how many times do you go and you're like, I'm going to eat like eight salads this week. And then you eat like two. (laughs) have to throw the lettuce out. (laughs) So yeah, it's just, just like trying your best to be intentional about what you buy. um, And when you're, when you're buying things. It's a lot, but definitely worth the effort and just to be kind to yourself. Because I've definitely been in stages where I have a lot going on and I feel like that is so overwhelming for me to like bring awareness. Just do what you can. If you feel like you can't do much, then then jump in and do more when you feel like you have the energy to. Like it's just, it's all an ebb and flow and I get upset when it is that all or nothing mentality. It's not going to help. Compassion and empathy is always going to help us get to where we want to be, not judgment and condemnation for like not doing something correctly. Right. I think it's just a learning, you know, it's how you teach people and how you learn together. I like the phrase like calling people in instead of calling people out. Yeah. So that's what I try to do. Like, you know, when I find someone who's like, anybody who doesn't recycle everything in their kitchen is wrong. I'm like, okay, which is what I was telling my friend. Do you recycle everything that's in your bathroom? And then it starts like a conversation because, you know, I'm not calling you out because you don't recycle things in your bathroom. I'm like inviting you into a discussion about why that's important. So I think it's just coming from the right place um, and finding mutual ground, you know, or common ground with the people around you. Like we both care about the environment. Like let's teach each other and grow so we can we can do things better. And just one other thing I want to highlight is like during COVID-19, we've all been shopping local. Um, and I think that that's something that will also help, you know, not not doing that Amazon three day shipping mm-hmm. <laughs> and like saying, hmm, can I shop? Like, is there a place down the street that offers this as well? Um, so I, I think that that's also been something from COVID-19 that I hope to see last, you know, far past the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to bring it all the way back. We've kind of like gone backwards to everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, which is totally fine. But I did want to add some more context around COVID itself. This was kind of like the initiator to these bigger conversations, at least in this era of 2020 and this year. I know you talked to, I think it was one of your professors too, about where COVID came from and what happened with that and why it did what it did. So I'm just curious your perspective and like what information you have on that. I'm definitely not a doctor. Um, So I just want to preface that. Um, Not a doctor or a scientist. Um, But I think that what makes COVID such a hard virus to fight is that it kind of checks all the boxes for a perfect storm, right? So when you look at a virus, there's kind of two things that matter, right? There's like transmission, which is how quickly does the virus spread to people around it? If there's one infected person, how many people will they infect? That's the first part. And then the second part is like the fatality rate. 
So once someone is infected, what's the likelihood that they will die from the virus? Um, and so when we look at um, other, other viruses, other coronaviruses even, so like SARS and MERS, like both of those viruses had very low or, or relatively low infection rates, but high fatality rates, right? So for those viruses, and, and Ebola is an example as well, um, where, you know, it's really hard to contract Ebola. Like to get Ebola, you have to be in contact with bodily fluids from an infected person. That's, that can't happen just crossing the street, right? So that, so, but once you get Ebola, it is extremely likely that you will, you will die from it. Um, so, you know, Ebola is easy to contain because you can easily track the people that um, have been in contact with someone who was infected. And then once they, you, you've contacted those people, you can easily contain them and treat them as, as best you can. Um, on the other hand, you have things like swine flu, which is extremely infectious, but not deadly, right? So the people who get it might not, they have annoying like symptoms, like the flu symptoms, but they, they're, very, they're very less likely to die. And so what makes COVID-19 so unique as a virus and why it's been so difficult to contain is because it, it has a pretty high transmission rate not only does it have a high transmission rate, but you can also be contagious before you even know you have it, um, which that's fun. That makes it really hard to track it um, because how do you how do you even remember who you've had contact with? I live in New York City, right? Like I cross the street <laughs> and I cross the street, and you can infect like so many people. Um, so right, so it's highly like highly contagious. It's also really hard to track, and on top of that, it can have some pretty dire um, consequences if you do catch it and you have certain comorbidities. Um, so, you know, I think it's like the perfect storm of a virus. It has, you know, it's just, it's very difficult to track and trace, um, and contain. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's why it stands out so much and why we've had to quarantine for so long, because, you know, they still don't really know what we're dealing with. Um, and they're still investigating where this, you know, how this came to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like so many of these conversations and topics that we've already covered, it just seems like everything really just transpired to make us pay attention to some of these things that need to be reevaluated. It was just so much. I mean, it still is so much, but I wanted to bring this together with what we can do now because we have a new president. The news is a little bit different right now. And it might be easy to turn another cheek and not really pay attention as much. It's just not as in our face as it was. I noticed my social media is different. Like these conversations are still ongoing and I see them happening online, but it's by no means like what it was at earlier parts of the year and not that it needs to be. But what do you have to say about what we can do now? Or like, how do we approach this instead of people are craving to go back to normal? This is not what we want to go back to. No, that's like the thesis of my book is you know, normal didn't really serve us to begin with. Um, and so I don't think it's a return to normal. I think it's a redesigning of our normal to be more equitable and more inclusive um, and to call people in. So I, I think that that's like the first step. I think, you know, my grandma always used to say like, know better. If you know better, you can do better. So now we know better. 
right? And and we can do better. We can wear our masks. We can get vaccinated. Um, you know, if your doctor recommends it, of course. Um, there are so many ways that we can we can do better. We can make sure that we're gathering and safely if we do need to gather. Like, stay six feet apart. Sanitize everything. Wash your hands. These we we can do better. And I think you know we've had the lowest cold and flu seasons that we've had for a while because people were wearing their masks. Um, and, you know, maybe that's something that, that stays, stays around for a little bit. Maybe we, we know better. So now we can say, Oh, maybe it's flu season. We should put on our masks and people are less weird about that because everyone wore masks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I think that's the first thing. Um, I think the second thing is, you know, I've seen a lot of people who are like, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. Um, and I don't always know like what that entails, right? So I think that it's important to do your research about any of these topics like climate change or race or um, innovation, like anything you want to know about. I think it's really important to do research first before you, you know, talk to someone about it. Um, because I think that you know, especially in matters with race, like there are a lot of questions I get all the time, like, uh, like, how do you do your hair? Like, you know, why do you wear your hair like this? It's like, you can Google that. Like, you don't need to ask me that. <laughs> so I think that it's like, you know, everyone's in, in a different phase of their life and, and on their own journey of growth. And so I think that it's important to like first access information that that's easily and readily available for you. And then once you're more educated, then I think that it's important to engage with other people and say, you know, kind of like what we did today, like, what's your experience been like? What do you talk about in, you know, this writing or in your work? And I think then we can have, you know, more emphatic conversations rather than like information exchange. Because um, I know when I post things on social media, people will ask me follow up questions. And I'm like, you know, all of these things are on the Black Lives Matter website. Like, that's, you know, like, we can easily find that. So I think it's like, you know, it does take work. Um, you know, you're not going to meet one person. My perspective isn't always the right perspective. Um, I'm just one person who've had, who's had one experience. So I think it's important to, to do your own research and have your own opinion and not just kind of dictate what, you know, people have told you. I think that's extremely important for you to engage with those materials before you kind of have these discussions. And then I think the last thing is we just need to really investigate how all of these things are tied together. Um, and, you know, in the book, I talk about capitalism and how, you know, all of these things are tied to how we understand value being created in our environment and in our economic environment, I should say. And so I think that, you know, at a systemic level, there's a lot of work to do to, capture and understand how value is created beyond like price like how are we incentivizing large corporations to you know reinvest back into the economy um, have a positive impact on the environment um, a lot of these things are systemic and so i think that we need to investigate those like systemic roots um, so that we can make like some broad wide-ranging change um, and, you know, I think at the individual level, that looks like going out and voting for people who, who at the local um, and national levels, you feel, um, you know, will put us, put our country, our environment um, in a better place for the future. So I think it's just about, you know, I, I want to leave 
this world in a better place than I left it, than I came into it. Um, and so I think that if you have that mindset, I think we can make some really remarkable changes altogether. I'm hopeful that that's the direction that we're going in. Me too. I think there's a lot of really valuable conversations and a lot of people are doing their part to figure it out. What I want to do and why I was so excited to talk to you because I want to have like an accessible conversation. I, I also like what you said that when people say do the work, do the work. You know, we've heard that in Black Lives Matter conversations and climate change. We've just heard that you need to do the work individually. And so... I feel like you frame that really well, what that actually looks like, looking into resources and digesting that information first. Because if you have, like you said, an information exchange, it would be really hard for me to then come back to that with like a productive thing to keep the conversation going or have some type of output. Like it wouldn't be a productive conversation. It's just like me learning from another person. Yeah. And one person who's like, my experience is really unique. And I, even though I'm a black woman, like I have lighter skin, I have privileges that you know, like I have a college education, I have privileges that a lot of people don't have. And so my perspective is informed by that. Um, which is why I think it's so important to have that like historical context and have that like, you know, private research moment, you can Google anything stupid. Okay, like all your stupid questions can go <laughs> into Google. <laughs> and then after that, it's like, have a, a people first dialogue. So, you know, talk about the human that you're speaking to, and not like the group of people. It's like, ask like Sarah what has your experience been as a podcaster not like Sarah speak for all podcasters what is it like I really like the way that you frame that I think that that probably happens a lot I mean obviously I'm not getting those questions because I'm not I am a white girl but I like the idea of focusing on the person having multiple conversations because I like the way you frame that with different experiences and learning from different people to give you a better idea of some of the stuff that goes on because everyone is going to have their different challenges and life experience it totally and I have some friends who are black and didn't watch any they didn't watch any um like television of of like George Floyd Breonna Taylor they like didn't want that in their like like, that was their self-care protecting themselves from those conversations and then people would ask them about that like how has this impacted you and they're like that's trauma I don't want to talk about that at work by coffee. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's just, you know, everyone's on a different journey. And I'm such a big fan of asking for consent for conversations. Um, so like I use, I had like an old linguistic professor who said like, you know, you can ask for consent for anything. Like I love when I have like bad news to say to someone, I'm like, hey, I have something hard to tell you. Is it okay if I tell you now? Like, and then yes or no. Or like, hey, I have a question about, Black Lives Matter. Is it okay if I ask you now? Um, because you just don't know where people are. So it's just nice to have like trigger warnings are a good like example of like asking for consent before you throw something on someone. But I think it can be even more casual than that. Just kind of saying, you know, you know, are you in a good place right now for me to talk to you about X and then having the conversation? I really like that because I think it gives everyone the tool to be able to have those conversations because I think people get scared because they hear things like this or like people don't want me to ask them these questions, but I don't really know how else to go about it, whatever the conversation might be or the thought process. But that kind of gives you a tool to frame that to see like, is this okay to ask someone this question right now? Or they're going to tell me no, or that this is a resource I can look at or something like that. Yeah, but at least you know, like if they're like, hey, not a good time, but let's talk at another time. Like, let's get coffee at another time. Then you know, they're coming to the conversation in a better mood. They know what you're talking about. They're prepared. Um, 
and and you know i think you can have a more productive conversation you never know when you're going to catch someone especially in covid <laughs> yes absolutely everyone has a lot going on right now so i think yes empathy and awareness and compassion will go a long way in like any conversation you have but especially these well i have three questions that i ask everyone at the end here and then we'll wrap things up so the first question is what is something you do that makes you feel like your best self i do my hair i love to give myself blowouts and like give myself facial so I'll do like a spa day and I literally tell my fiance like do not come into the bathroom for three hours this is my me time and then I walk out and I'm like fresh as a daisy and I'm in the best mood (laughs) I love that yes I've been known to lock the door to do similar things I'm like no 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 (laughs) yes it's just like me and my dog and we're having our self-care moment I give her a deep conditioner I have a deep conditioner we're all happy oh that's perfect I love that The second question is, um, what do you do to find inspiration when you're feeling uninspired? Something that's probably come up when you're writing your book. Yeah, writer's block is definitely the key. Um, I watch a movie or I go out. I, I live in New York City, so I literally can just take a walk. And by the time I've taken like a 20 minute walk, the amount of things I've seen and heard <laughs> will usually inspire me. Um, and Yeah, I think the last thing I do is for writer's block specifically, if there are any writers listening, um, I just start writing everything I hear. All right. The last question is, what is one piece of advice that if we all followed, we'd all be better off? Mm, Check your privilege. And I think if we can all like check our privilege at the door, we can have some really like great conversations and be better people. I think, I think it's important. Like you can struggle and still have privilege. Um, privilege is like the deck of cards you were handed randomly at birth. Right. And like, you know, how, how you play those cards is your lived experience. Um, so I think that just checking your privilege at the door is really important and not making excuses for when you say something wrong or, or do something wrong, just say, yeah, I was wrong. there's no if and or but just stop there and let people chat meaning like if you had like some type of experience like if someone's like oh like you have a privileged life like da da and then they they come back and say like well I went through this and it was really traumatic and I've struggled too like is that kind of what you mean yeah I use the deck of cards I used to like teach kids about privilege which is really difficult to do because kids don't understand it um but one of the ways I would say them is like, it's like when you're playing Uno, cause like all kids know how to play Uno. Um, it's like the deck of cards you were handed is completely random. We shuffled the deck, right? And we just gave you those cards. And some people are just given cards that are not winnable. You can't win with that set of cards. And some people are given cards. It's like, you're, you're done with the game. You finished so fast, you won everything, right? That's random, you didn't earn that. When you're playing the game and people who like, as you're playing the game and like people win who maybe shouldn't have won or like, you know, you you were in an impossible situation and, and couldn't win. Like those are examples of how privilege works in society, but it doesn't discount the fact that you were still given those cards. Yeah, I really love the way that you framed that. You don't have to like hide your privilege or like pretend that you don't have it or try not to act like you have it. But what are you going to do with it then? Well, no one, it's like that meme, like no one, absolutely nobody, like someone pretending they're really oppressed when they're not. Like, it's like, it, it just gets really interesting. And people have such a response 
you know, to, to a visceral response when you tell them that they're privileged. Um, and like people, I don't think people understand that like all of us do have privileges, um, but just it's a gradient, it's a spectrum. And it's what you do with that. Like Sarah, you having me on your podcast, that's a great example of like how you're using your privilege to amplify the voices of people who may not be in the room without these platforms. So like, I think that's a good example. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just so grateful that we're able to have this conversation. I've learned a lot from you in like the 45 minutes that we've been recording. So I, yeah, I'm excited for your book. So how can we like get involved with what you're doing and find you online and tell us about the book and all that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm right now in the pre-sale campaign uh, for my book. So um, if you're interested in pre-ordering, there are a lot of perks, like you get to um, be mentioned in my acknowledgement section. Um, you get to read my introduction and in, I think chapter one before it's actually published and tell me what you think. Um, so there are some cool perks involved with with being an early adopter to the book. And um, also you can follow me at Jordan Green Writes Things. Um, and I, if you have any specific questions about the podcast, just DM me and we can chat. Perfect. Cool. Thank you so much. That is it for this week's episode. I hope you liked it. I hope you got something out of it. And I hope it made you think a little bit about how you can keep the conversation going and do your part on your end to make the world a better place by paying attention to these things because they are so important. And one of the ways you can do that is by supporting Jordan and her book sale. So please find her on Instagram at Jordan Writes Things and make sure to check out her book, It Took a Crisis. Also come find me on Instagram at the Tea Please Podcast. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening to help this podcast grow and get more important conversations like this out into the world. All right, enjoy your week and I will talk to you in the next episode.